Happy Monday, kitty cats. And uh, before we get into today's interview, I got to let you know about a little thing called the Lions of Liberty Pride. It is our Patreon where our supporters fully fund this program. You can find that over at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. We don't just ask you to toss some hard-earned dough our way. We make sure you get tons of value in return. You get early access and live streams to many of my interviews. We have many, many bonus shows such as Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers, uh, Brian's brand new, spanking new show, Nearly Daily Show, Good Morning Bleep Head. Uh, you're going to need to subscribe to the Patreon to, to hear what the bleep head is uh, for me because I'm not going to blast your earbuds with curses, and, at least not in the very first minute of your Monday morning, just in case the kids are in the car. Uh, but tons and tons of bonus content there. Not only that, all of our patrons get a discount at the Lions of Liberty store where we have all sorts of merchandise, our Taxation is Death t-shirt, our Wax On Tax Off t-shirt. We have mugs, we have jackets, we have beanies, we have just about all the Lions of Liberty gear you could ever dream up. Find all of that over at lionsofliberty.store store and don't forget to join the pride and support the greatest liberty variety show on earth over at patreon.com slash lions of liberty we need to empower people with not just the philosophical tools but the inspiration to break free from the system welcome to the flagship lions of liberty podcast your weekly dose of education inspiration and real world application from the top minds in the liberty movement you want liberty, we need to be better leaders, better husbands, better fathers, better friends, better businessmen. We need to be better people. Here's your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. All right, Kitty Cats, so with me today, he is the co-owner of Muddied Waters Media, and you may know him most recently as the 2020 Libertarian Party vice presidential candidate. I'm very pleased to welcome Spike Cohen. Spike, are you ready to roar? I'm ready, Mark. Let's do it, man. I felt like you would be, Spike. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff I want to get to with you. I also have some questions uh, from our supporters, our Patreon supporters, and the Lions of Liberty Pride. But first, I want to really dig in here. I want to dig into the Spike Cohen story. I want to find out how all of this started for you. I know on your on your website it said you learned pretty early on uh, about child labor, about the immorality of child labor laws. But maybe you can start there and take it wherever you want. Yes, that's actually my favorite place to start. And so many people want to go past that. No, I want to, I want to focus right on it. No, I'm glad, man. Thank you. Uh, the And yes, when I say, you know, child labor laws are a bad thing, uh, unironically, even some libertarians are like, maybe you shouldn't say that. I'm like, well, I don't usually open with it unless I'm around other libertarians. But yeah, so, um, you know, when I was uh, 13 years old, my parents said, if you want money, go get a job. You know, we're, we're taking care of your needs and your and your, you know, your your food and your your housing and even your clothing and uh, you know, and all of that. But if you want to have spending money for stuff, go get a job. And uh, that wasn't exactly legal, but <laughs> uh, it turns out that uh, there were businesses in Myrtle Beach that were uh, were didn't care about that. So your parents had a little bit of a, an, an anarchist streak in them, maybe to some extent as well. Huh? A little bit, especially at least when it came to you working. <laughs> at the very least, there's a hiring illegal employees streak going in, uh, along in, in Myrtle Beach. Um, if nothing else, uh, they have that going for them. But so, you know, I, I got a job at and I, I won't name the, the name of the place, but uh, I got a job busing tables. And, uh, and it was a really cool experience. Um, I got to, first of all, I was making money. It was $5 an hour under the table, which was, you know, huge, massive uh, for, you know, a, for a kid, uh, you know, I, I'm, 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 you know, walking or taking my bike to, to work, uh, on during the summers. And, uh, and I would work the, the weekends, uh, and some weekdays during the summer. And I, I was making all this money. Um, you know, all the, the raining $5 bills and even some of the, the wait staff that I would help in the busier surge times, because this was during the summer, they'd tip me out too. So I was doing really well. Like I was making, you know, I probably in retrospect, it was probably like, you know, two, 300 bucks a week or something like that. But it was like, I had like all this money. And, uh, and also the other thing that happened was, you know, it was still tough work. And I would be working in a kitchen or, you know, busing tables or, or something like that. And I'd see people doing work that was pretty much the same thing mine was. And they were two and three and sometimes four times, especially in the kitchen, four times my age. And I thought, 
wow, I don't, I don't want to be working for someone else like this <laughs> yeah. four years from now. And then, and then uh, a couple summers later, I did some landscaping work. This was now legal. I was now in the, in the legal age of working, although it was still under the table. Uh, but, uh, but I was doing landscaping work, which is tough, tough, tough work. I mean, during the summer, 100 degrees out, you know, you're out uh, uh, helping dig ditches and, and laying sod and, and doing, uh, uh, you know, blowing out driveways. And so the, the heat from the asphalt it was rough. And again, I was seeing people two, three, four times my age still doing this stuff. And I thought, yeah, I definitely know. I don't want to do that. So when I turned 16, um, I decided I wanted to start my uh, my own business. I, I did not. It, college just seemed like a bad idea. I didn't like school anyway. And I thought spend four plus years in school and run up you know, tens of thousands of dollars in, in either debt or, or, you know, just spending that money. Did you feel any of that pressure that we all kind of get from uh, like guidance counselors, parents or anything like that, that oh, yeah. where we're kind of, we're basically told like, this is your only path. You must go to college. You must get a four-year degree and then you can go uh, get a job, get a 401k, buy a house to go into debt and then retire at 65 and everything works out. From the schools. Yes. From my parents, it was like, listen, you got to do something besides get high champ. <laughs> like you got to, you got to do something. You're starting to reach a point, you know, where once you turn 18, you need to be going to college. And you're going to want better weed at that age. So you're going to need to make more money. <laughs> you're going to have to make more money. Like you're going to have to, to, to you know, scale up over time. Right. But so, you know, you got to get a better, you got to either uh, get a, a trade or go to college or something like that, or start a business or something like you can't just not do, you know, landscaping on the weekends uh, on the summers is not cutting it. And so, so there was that pressure, but it wasn't specifically for college. It was just, Hey, schmuck, you're about to be legally an adult. You need to do something. So uh, at 16, I, I started a, a, my web design company and uh, it was sort of the combination of, it, it's interesting when you're, when you're making money and especially when it's under the table, the, the more you put out in work, the more you get back. And I was also learning, you know, you make good relationships with the other servers and, you know, let them kind of mentor you and they give you some money too. And, you know, I really got money motivated from that. And I thought, wow, you know, you put in the work, you get the money back. And so that was kind of what I, I applied to my business and, and, you know, was able to grow that into a very successful company. So uh, I am grateful that I had that experience because I'm not sure, had I not had to work and had I been told, oh, well, you know, you can now go to school for a little bit longer or, you know, or, or something like that. And then, and then you can work. I'm not, I'm, I might've taken that path or, or I might, I might've been listless because I really didn't like school. So more than likely I may have then been like, well, I'll just work then not really realizing what that exactly meant. Right, right, right. The, the fact that you weren't at least by your parents necessarily pushed right into that. It didn't force you to just say, screw it. I'm just going to go do my own thing and, and get a regular job. It actually is a part of what helped you decide you wanted to start your own business and, and do things that way. Yeah, no, I had a concept of what work was. And I'm like, yeah, this sucks. Cause I mean, you know, it, it was great to make money and it was fun to do it as a kid. And, and again, I also had the concept of you're a kid, right? So I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm washing dishes and busting tables now. That's cool. I'm a kid. Um, or I'm landscaping. That's cool. I'm a kid, but I don't want to keep doing this. Like I I'm already, like I'm already feeling rough from this. How am I going to feel when I'm this guy's age over here next right. to me? So yeah, no, that, that really helped put some perspective on exactly what work means. And, to be clear, uh, Mark and everyone watching this, my parents weren't like, you have to go get a job. They just said, hey, look, if you want spending money, go work for it. If you we, want better we weed, for I our mean... spending money. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you work, we work for ours. You got to work for your, your, your money, too. So it sounds like through this process, you were kind of getting a, a real life lesson in what you might later come to see as like libertarian ideas, uh, free markets and this sort of thing, kind of making your own way. And I'm sure once you started your own business and started making money that way, at some point down this road, you start to meet a new friend, the tax man. And I'm sure I'm sure that that sort of opened your eyes a little bit when you were no longer be able to get, you know, just get, get cash under the table. Oh, absolutely. So I know the first time that I experienced that was definitely with my business. Um, it, it's interesting. I've never actually been a salaried employee for someone else where I, you know, filled out a, uh, you know, filled out an application and, and got a, you know, a check with a pay stub. I was always either under the table or working for myself and, and with my own business. But yeah, no, when you start making money in business, wow, they treat you like you committed some kind of crime, but they're going to help you, you know, get out of, get out of, uh, you know, jail time for it. It's, it's crazy, man. Like it, it is nuts. And I, and I'm, I was trying to remember, cause someone said to me, you know, well, when you were working before, 
did you have a concept of, you know, how bad taxes were? And I, I think I want to make sure I, I don't think I'm making this up, but I think I recall hearing other employees talk about, cause they weren't under the table, uh, talking about how much taxes were coming out of their paycheck and thinking about well, sucks to be you. Cause I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting paid in cash every, at the end of every night. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, um, I think that that's the case. I may be making that up, but if that had happened, that certainly would have been my reaction. Like, well, that sucks. I don't know why they're doing that, but yeah, no, once I was actually, once I had my own business and, uh, and they're, they're coming for their cut, man, that is a, uh, that's a, and, and you feel like, again, I, I, I started my company at 16. I started making serious money at like 17, 18. And I started making like, oh, wow. Kind of like, wow, I can be a homeowner now money in my, in my late teens, early twenties. And, um, the interesting thing about that is, yeah, that's when they come after you hard. And I remember thinking, I'm not doing anything wrong here. Like I wasn't even, I didn't even consider myself a libertarian. I've always been libertarian when it comes to things like guns and, and, and drugs and like your own, how you live your life, social stuff. I don't really care what anyone does with their own body. It's none of my business. And you sure, certainly should be able to, to uh, protect yourself and all that stuff. But on bigger issues, you know, I actually ended up becoming a neocon after 9-11 just because I really didn't have any guidance politically on, on what I thought about things. But I, I always kind of saw taxes as like, Really? Like, how is this helping? What is taking this from me? How is this helping other people? I could do way more if you weren't taking this from me. So where along the way uh, in this journey uh, from, you know, someone who's coming to at least to see that taxes are kind of bullshit. And uh, but you're also getting into this little bit of neocon phase, as I know, happened to many people after 9-11, uh, including, you know, yes. many good friends of mine who are now incredibly hardcore libertarians. But where along the way did the did the philosophy actually come into play for you where you actually started to define yourself uh, politically in, in that way? After years of frustratingly, frustratedly arguing with libertarians online about my neocon beliefs and how, you know, we just needed to spread democracy around the world and increasingly realizing just how stupid that sounded. Now, for a very long time, you know, there were those libertarians that were, you know, uh, calling us all the stuff, calling me all the stuff that we often still hear, you know, the bootlicker and the warmonger and all that stuff. And I was like, yeah, no, I don't really care what you think of me. So that made me less receptive to it. But over time, hearing Ron Paul, who I, by the way, I hated Ron Paul. Ron Paul was that lone Republican who wouldn't get in line. Even some of these Democrats understood that we had to, you know, spread peace through our through superior firepower and that we have to, you know, use the power of our you know, proud U.S. military to spread democracy and freedom and protect our greatest ally, Israel, like all of that nonsense. Right. I was that guy. To a T, I would unironically say stuff like, you know, maybe we ought to just nuke the place. Like I had no concept of the humanity of the people over there. They were all just abstracts that posed some weird threat to my freedoms and whatever the government had to do here um, to to uh, you know stop those terrorists because it didn't apply to me. I'm not a terrorist. You know all that nonsense. Um, and over time, just realizing all of the predictions that people like Ron Paul or Matt Kibbe or Walt, Walter E. Williams, when they would talk about, I agree with them on everything except when it came to the war and uh, and or the wars and the surveillance state. And when they would say that stuff, and I over time I realized it was consistent with what we, me and them, believed on everything else and all their predictions were coming true, that made me really start to reconsider what I believe. And I kind of transitioned over time from being a neocon to more of a paleocon constitutionalist type and eventually to being, you know, my, my final super saiyan form here of libertarianism. Was there any kind of specific like aha moment that you can think of or just something you heard along the way that you said that really got you to think like, oh, wait, I'm I'm an idiot. Like, like, what am I what am I thinking? Why can't I make this this final leap here and realize that the real consistent position is also is to also be opposed to this stuff? So I think my aha moment actually came from going from being a minarchist slash constitutionalist to being an anarchist. And that aha moment was when I was saying, well, you know, but there's just some things that government has to do. And it wasn't enough for people to say, well, what is it? And I would I would argue in circles. But uh, a, a guy by the name of Lou Sander, 
uh, who used to have a show called uh, Freedom Fiends. Mm-hmm. I was arguing with him one time and he asked me a real simple question. Uh, actually, it was a two part question. He said, if people can't be trusted with all of their freedom, why can some people be trusted with power over everyone else? And if some people can be trusted with power over everyone else, why can't we be trusted with our freedom then? And I said, well, but it's not that everyone can be trusted with their freedom. Uh, some people, you know, we can appoint some people that, uh, that can have that power. And they said, okay, but how do we decide that? And I said, the people decide that. And he said, you mean the people that you can't trust with freedom? That hit me like, was like, hey, screw you. And, uh, and, and but, but I realized, you know, when it, when, when it was said, I thought, well, I have no rebuttal to that whatsoever. And I really made, that's when I read No Trees in which he had been bugging me to read for a while. And uh, after reading No Trees in which for, spoiler alert to, to, for those who haven't read it, go, first of all, go ahead and read it. Um, but it, it kind of uses the English common law contractual law arguments against the um the um uh legitimacy of the not just the US constitution but all forms of government all forms of coerced man-made government that through via the state and uh, I was like oh crap now I'm an anarchist <laughs> and that was sort of an aha moment all right well you know what else was an aha moment for me it was the day I discovered our good friends Nate and Charlie over at Good Morning Liberty. You have got to be checking these guys out because they crank out not one, not two, not three like we do here at Lions Liberty. Five stinking shows per week, and they are stellar. These guys uh, have backgrounds in the music industry and the healthcare industry. They really come from a lot of unique perspectives that they bring to the ideas of liberty. And these last few months, they've really been cranking things up. They've also incorporated a lot of interviews. And of course, you don't want to ever miss the dumb bleep of the week. You got to check out Good Morning Liberty. These guys are slinging this liberty product to you five days a week and deserve to be in your earbuds, as far as I'm concerned. So check them out. Good Morning Liberty, wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you're listening to this, you will find them as well. And don't forget to hit up their very, very catchy URL, BernieLies.com. You got to love it. Spike, I want to pivot a little bit. Um, A few weeks ago, you posted a thread on Twitter uh, talking about, uh, I don't know if it's something you'd spoken about before. I had never heard you speak about it, but you talked about your diagnosis that you got several years ago uh, with MS. Can you talk about that a little bit? And I mean, you can go as as little or as much detail as you want on the disease itself, but I'm just kind of want to focus more on like how that changed your perspective in life and kind of led you onto this path that you're on now. So it, sure. And I, I've, I've actually, I've talked about this a few times, but I, it occurs to me that I've never really, a lot of people just know MS equals bad disease, but they don't necessarily know what it means. Cause I've had people come up to me and say like, oh, are you feeling sick and nauseous today? And I'm like, no, it's not like, like, I, and I realize like people don't really realize what it is. So MS is a autoimmune disease where your immune system sometimes gets confused and uh, attacks your body. That's what an autoimmune disease is. With MS, it attacks your central nervous system, so your brain and your your spinal cord. And it can cause pretty much any kind of neurological symptom you can think of. Whatever your brain controls, which is everything, it can affect that. Um, My MS... Uh, for a very, for a few years was kind of out of control and uh, pretty aggressive. And so I have actually a decent amount of damage on my, on my, uh, on my um, central nervous system. Uh, but over time, I've, I've now been stable for coming up on five years, actually, uh, about just over four and a half years. And um, it, the, the uh, damage has been, a- been able to heal slowly over time. Um, and I've, my overall like symptoms have been pretty stable. Most of my symptoms are like sensory stuff, like weird feelings that I get in my hands and arms and, uh, um, uh, transitory weakness where I'll be weak in an area and then it kind of comes back and stuff like that. But it's relatively minor type of stuff. Uh, and it's been pretty stable. So that's just sort of the background of what it is I'm actually going through. It's minor enough where no one can really tell, uh, unless I tell them or point out something that, that I'm feeling or, or, or not able to do in that moment or something like that. Um, so yeah, so I was, um, kind of raging through life, um, in my business, in my life, uh, in my really in everything, uh, I had used a lot of anger and, uh, I had learned early on as a kid that apparently, you know, I could use 
anger and just kind of rage my way through stuff, which I guess when you're in your late teens, early twenties, that can work. Uh, once you start getting into your thirties, that can be pretty, uh, uh, pretty, uh, wearing on you. And, um, I just wasn't happy. I was very successful, gorgeous, a very supportive wife, very, very, you know, loving family I, on paper. Everything should be great, but I was just very, very unhappy. And then in 2014, I woke up in the right side of my, my body went numb. And after a few uh, weeks of uh, different types of testing and everything else, I ended up being told after an MRI uh, that I m- probably had MS. It, it would take a while to get a, an official diagnosis, but I probably did. And that left me just feeling hopeless. And uh, I basically spent two years like a dead man walking, just waiting for the other shoe to drop. And it did. It dropped in 2016 when it came on real hard. I started having one attack after the next, and uh, my um, my uh, condition got worse and worse. What What does it mean when you have a uh, when you have like an attack? Is Is it like a you just get pain somewhere, or do you start to, to lose? I mean, like how does that actually? So that's the thing about MS. It can be anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, my symptoms, the way I could tell, is all of a sudden I get all these like electrical feelings in my hands and my arms, wow. and you know, uh, I, suddenly like a, a symptom I'd never experienced before would just kind of come on, uh, or I'd feel really, really fatigued during the whole thing because your your body's trying to fight this off. You have two sides of your body. One side thinks it's attacking something uh, in your body. That's it thinks that your central nervous system in that moment, it thinks it's some kind of foreign pathogen and it's trying to kill it. And then the other part of your body is trying to fight that. So it makes you very, very fatigued and your brain's tired from getting attacked. And it was just very, very difficult. And, um, I, uh, so I finally got diagnosed, which actually was good news at that point. Cause it meant now we could talk about treatment options. Um, and, before that, they had said, oh, you know, you could reduce stress in your life and you could lose some weight and you could change your diet. And I'm like, who ca- like, I'm going to, you know, who cares? Like reduce stress. You're telling me that there's this, this sword hanging over my head. That's going to drop. <laughs> but at any don't moment. forget yeah, about no, it. Just stay re- calm. Yeah. Don't, but don't panic. That'll make it even worse. Oh, okay. I won't. Um, but when they, what really like the real hard hit, the aha moment there was when the doctors told me that the goal of the treatment for my MS. Cause I, I go into this appointment and I'm hopeful. You're going to tell me about a drug. I'd already done some research that there were different drugs that actually can basically stop the progression or at least greatly, greatly slow it down. And I thought, good, this is, we can finally get this thing and, and, and whatever. But they opened by saying, you know, the goal of your MS treatment is to slow down the rate of your progression so that it's no different than the aging process. And that hit me like a ton of, but that was supposed to make me feel better. And I thought, holy crap, it made me realize in that moment, it didn't matter if I had MS. It didn't matter if I was perfectly healthy. It did nothing. None of that mattered because in 50, 100, 150 years, none of us are going to be here. We're all progressing. And that's not, I'm not saying that to be depressing or anything like that, but it's just the reality. Eventually we won't be here. Yeah. I mean that. <laughs> and in that moment, go ahead. No, I mean, I, I'm just, it's just a really mind blowing concept when you, when you think about it that way. Cause I mean, I, I know personally, like up to maybe five years ago, I pretty much felt immortal at all times. Um, but there are, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are times in your life, whether it's with relatives or friends or somebody, you know, where you really begin to understand like, Oh no, I'm, I am dying. Yeah. Like we're all dying. like every, every single day we are getting closer to death. That is, that is true of the richest person in the world and the poorest person in the world. And it doesn't yeah, matter and for you. It yeah. was actually the the somewhat good news about the disease wasn't was just really telling you now you get to default to where we all are dying. <laughs> yeah. And, and that was what really hit me because here I am going very hopeful. It was the first hope I had had in a while. And now I'm being told, yeah, by the way, we're all going to die. And it was like, wait, I don't a know second. if you ever thought wait, about this before, <laughs> but if you have, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know if you'd ever considered your own mortality, but you know, the thing is we're kind of trained not to think yeah, about yeah. it. And, and, and there are very few cultures where even talking about it is all that, uh, encouraged, like being, having a, a, a healthy, uh, um, healthy relationship with the fact that, yeah, we're not going to be here all that long. And the older you get, the faster it goes. So it's like, guys, what's going on. And so in that moment and being told, yeah, and it might not work. So you may die sooner. MS doesn't typically make you die all that sooner. It might take a few years off. It's more your quality of life during that time that it affects. But I'm thinking, you know, I might not be able to walk in a couple of years. I might not be able to talk. I might not be able to see. I might not be able to, you know, who knows? I mean, it, it might really, really, can. at this rate, it's going to be really bad in a couple of years. Uh, and best case scenario is 50, 100 years from now, I won't even be here. 
And so that made me really think, what is my purpose here? What is our purpose here? It doesn't matter how much money we have. And at that point, I'd reached a point where uh, I didn't have to work anymore. I wasn't, I'm not super, super wealthy, but I, I don't have to work anymore. And, uh, and I reached a point where it was more important to protect my sanity than to continue raging at a business that was making a lot of money and growing, but was also making me miserable. And I realized it doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how comfortably you lived. What matters is the impact you leave when you're gone. Is the world a better place because you were here? And that kind of set me on the journey into to where I am now. And I'm, I will never say that I am grateful for having MS. MS is a terrible, terrible disease. It is as of now incurable. Uh, it is, they don't, they aren't even a hundred percent certain what causes it. Um, and it can just be, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But I am glad for the reset that was caused by it. I have to think that what you kind of described, I'm not, I mean, I have no idea where, where your disease came from, obviously. Uh, but I, I have, I have to think that when, as you described yourself raging through life for like, you know, at that point in your, t- you know, where you were, um, all that time raging and raging and raging and raging. If it was this that got you to sort of stop raging and, and like they said, you know, have a little less stress, kind of take things less seriously, not, not right. less seriously, but you, you know what I mean? Uh, maybe more seriously in, in many ways about how you're spending your time, what you're actually doing with your time. What, it, what is your purpose here? Actually? Yeah. Less seriously in some ways, but more seriously right. in others. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess, like I said, you're never going to call it a gift, but uh, everything that happens to us in life, kind of helps make us who we are today. And, and you finding that out has certainly done that for you. It absolutely has. And I will say something, cause I've heard, I've had people that are like, you're so brave to go and, and go, you know, travel the country and spread Liberty while you're battling through this. And I just think I'm like, I'm independently wealthy. And again, I'm not a billionaire or anything like that, but I don't have to work. I have an incredibly supportive and loving family. I have the greatest woman ever. No, no insult to any other women, but, you know, as my wife, I, I, I am, you know, have this incredible platform to be able to speak about liberty uh, around the world. I mean, I, I'm speaking in other countries remotely uh, as things are opening up again, we're getting scheduled for me to go out to other countries and speak like what, what a, an absolute blessing. If my one cross to bear uh, is that I have this autoimmune disease that as of right now is pretty much under control and at least stabilized, I'll take it. I mean, I, I, I feel incredibly, incredibly grateful and blessed every day that I wake up. Right. So how did this kind of newfound uh, attitude towards life, you might say, uh, what, what, you know, what factor, how did that factor into this pathway that led you to actually being uh, so active in this philosophy that you actually joined the Libertarian Party, ran for vice president, yep. served as the vice presidential candidate? How did we get from there to here? So, when that happened, when I realized that, yeah, I'm not going to just keep raging through life with my business. I'm going to stop doing that. And this was all part of this. I mean, we could spend an hour talking about this, this change that I had to make where I was, I was about a hundred pounds overweight as one who rages through life and sits at a computer. Most of the time does. I can't even, I can't even picture that. (laughs) I'm trying, I'm trying to add a hundred pounds to you in my mind and I'm not. (laughs) I'll occasionally like show photos of, uh, of what I looked like then. And people were like, holy crap, that doesn't even look like you. Yeah, no, I was a, I was a fatty and, uh, and I was, so I was told, listen, you should probably lose some weight because one of the things is your legs can get weaker and you need to take as much weight off as possible. Also, it's bad for you. And now you're in your thirties and your high blood pressure can start to affect you because you're not a kid anymore. And, um, you need to reduce your stress. And so I started getting into stoicism and I was reading about, you know, the Taoism and, you know, really just learning about like how to center myself, how to, how to respond instead of react, how to, uh, observe instead of raging or, or or reacting. How to live a more purposeful and grateful life, and you know, just really this whole journey. None of which is natural or easy. I mean, like we are wired to just re- react, no. react, react, react. I mean, it's only in recent years that I've really learned to, and I, it's a process. Like I'm not perfect in any way, but I, you know, have started to realize. Okay, maybe the first thing that comes into my head in a situation isn't the first thing I should say or do. In fact, isn't the maybe best I should just shut the fuck up for about always. an hour and and then can actually remove myself from this. Even if you were belief or take on it is right. The way you're about to say mm-hmm. it almost is always wrong. Exactly. And so I, yeah. I am, a, I am more of a, uh, you know, and it's funny cause I've had to kind of do a faster version of it during like these panels I do on, on the news and stuff. Yeah. Cause you do have to react quickly, mm-hmm. but in this moment I, I I've kind of become a lot better at being centered and not just, you know, angrily responding to stuff, but all that to say, I'm going through this journey 
And, and yes, the first few months is hell actually like learning to meditate, sit there in your thoughts. Jeez. And so, you know, I'm doing this stuff and I'm thinking, well, what do I want to do? So I took almost a year sabbatical, almost 2017. All I did was like rest well and get lots of sun and take all these supplements and just kind of relearn how to actually live healthily and healthfully and, and purposely and in grace and gratitude. And then once I did that, I thought, okay, I think I'm ready to start giving back to the world now. What is it I want to actually do? And my, my uh, MS had stabilized. I was also very weak during that time. I was fatigued all the time. I was having to take steroids all the time for my relapses. Once that all kind of calmed down, I'm like, okay, well, what is it I want to do now? So a few months later, uh, I, I had been kind of toying with the idea of podcasting, but I'm like, do we need another libertarian <laughs> podcast? But then I actually had people that were saying, hey, listen, your, your posts and when you talk about this and everything else, you know, you're, you're pretty good about it. You should do that. And I thought, okay, well, if I'm going to do this, how do I want to do it? And so I actually thought, I want to do a libertarian podcast that doesn't call itself that, at least not initially, and that reaches out to normies and uses kind of entertainment and humor to reach them. And so I saw that uh, another uh, group of people called uh, Muddy Waters Media, the Muddy Waters of Freedom, they were doing that uh, to some extent. And uh, so I was friends with them and they actually uh, invited me to come on. And uh, so I started my show, My Fellow Americans. And a few months later, when one of the co-owners left, um, I came on as the co-owner and the co-host of the Muddy Waters of Freedom. And uh, the rest is history. I started doing that, built up an audience, uh, got invited to, uh, it was actually Vermin Supreme who invited me to run for the vice presidential nomination. And uh, I did that. And, and, you know, the rest is history. The rest is history indeed, uh, Spike. And I know, I know you've you've talked a lot about the campaign um, <clears throat> on, on a lot of other podcasts. I don't want to repeat all of the same questions that you've been asked about, about social media posts and blah, 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 blah. Uh, but I, I do want to ask you a little bit more specifically about, like, you, you have made, I think, more than any, I think, libertarian candidate uh, for anything, except maybe Jacob Hornberger. You've made, like, such really strong attempts to reach out to, like, to Black Lives Matter, uh, to the criminal justice aspect of, like, of the black community. And I think there was a lot of criticism, not of you doing that, but of some of the messaging that, that came along with it. So I, I just want to, I guess, I, as I set up, I'm not going to ask you the same question here. I am like asking a similar question, <laughs> but I, I'm just kind of curious, how, how do you go about approaching like, because I think the biggest criticism with, with any kind of association or, or uh, with Black Lives Matter or any kind of connection to them is this, this idea that, look, this is a Marxist group. Uh, they have Marxist goals, Marxist ideals. You shouldn't be even associating with them. Um, so what's, what's your take on just how you're able to connect to groups like that and sort of try to insert your libertarian philosophy a little bit, try to get them to see things in a different way without what many people might say or call pandering to them, you know, just, just kind of agreeing with them and saying, yeah, yeah, we're libertarians. We agree with you on everything. How are you able to kind of, you know, balance that, that line there where you're able to stay consistent to your own principles, actually try to make progress on people without, you know, just, just pandering to the whole, the whole thing that they're laying out there. So first I want to talk about, I think part of the issue was that some of my messaging was also getting caught up with the campaign's messaging during the Jorgensen Cohen campaign, which I, if it wasn't being said by me or from my social media, I didn't have anything to do with it. Um, so for example, the, um, the actively anti-racist tweet, which was actually taken, it was cribbed from a speech that Joe Jorgensen gave at the convention in, or- in Orlando. And during the campaign, I did my best to give a spin on what that could mean for libertarians. But the, the problem with that tweet wasn't just the actual statement. It was that there wasn't really any follow up or call to action on what the hell that exactly meant. So you tell everyone you, you have to be actively anti-racist. OK, now what? <laughs> what what does next? that mean? What am I supposed am I supposed to argue with my uncle who makes a j- racist joke? Am I spo- like am I joining? What, what am I doing? Like, what exactly is it that you want me to do? Because whenever I hear anti-racist from others, I often hear things that I don't agree with. Not always, but sometimes. So is that what you want me to do? Is there some libertarian form of active anti-racism? Sure. What are we doing, folks? It's way too open to interpretation. It was, it was and that, and I even said that during the campaign. I said, you know, in retrospect, uh, it left a lot to to the imagination and not in a good way. I can tell you what my outreach to everyone has always been. First of all, keep in mind that the libertarians, we are a small group within a small group. And 
we are not just we are not just the small group of libertarians, but we're the small group of libertarians who still want to be electorally politically active because a lot of libertarians don't. A lot of libertarians want to be agorists or they want to be, you know, divorced from the system. They want to, you know, they don't want to participate. They think participation is violence. We agree, but we see it as defensive violence. They do not. And so we're kind of this group within a group. And we have these much larger groups that often say stuff that we originally said. Like we were the original police accountability people. We were the original anti-war people. We were the original, the government shouldn't be deciding who can and can't get married people. We were the original live however you want to live people. And we see other people that are espousing parts of our ideas, but then they're tying it to other garbage that's that's bad, you know? Um, and so we have one of two options there. We can either sit there and shake our heads disapprovingly while they do it in much larger numbers than us, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of times larger than us. Or we can engage with people who are willing to hear what we have to say, go into their spaces, listen to their concerns and hit them with the best ideas. You know, something that Scott Horton says all the time is, is that, um, you know, we are better than the left on the things that the left cares about. We're better than the right on the things the right cares about. For that matter, we're better than the center on the things that the center cares about. So we need to engage them and, and we can engage them from their precepts. So my thing was, I never reached out to like the Black Lives Matter leadership organization because, uh, first of all, they, they, that was a combination of kind of hard Marxists who were trying to push everyone into a, uh, you know, a, a Marxist uh, 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 critical race theory type of application of things. And then there was the other group that was just basically funneling money to the the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party. Um, they were possibly the worst actors in all of it. You know, at least the Marxists had a, an ideolo ideological bent behind what they were trying to do. The act blue people were just like, no, nah, this, this is just, we're literally just using you to, to vote for the people that created all the policies that we're protesting against right now. Uh, and so we, you know, my thing was when I would engage uh, I engage people locally. I went to you know local Black Lives Matter stuff. I was invited to the Black Guns Matter rally that uh, Maj Ture was a part of. Black Guns uh, it was it was or it was called Get the Strap, and it was Black Guns Matter Maj Ture's group, uh, Black Lives Matter seven five seven, and uh, which is a local uh, Virginia group, um, and uh, and the Black Panthers and the Huey P Newton Gun Club, and they invited me to come speak. Okay. So I went there and I'm talking with like 150, 200 armed black people in between the, uh, the Capitol building in Virginia and the Supreme court. I, I think it was the Supreme court behind me and I'm giving a speech and we're there. There isn't a single cop to be seen because there's 200 armed people there. And I said, I said, this is what happens when people are armed. All of a sudden, no one's getting brutalized. They're not even here. And we're in the center of their kingdom and they are leaving us the hell alone because no one brings tear gas and pepper spray to a gunfight and they don't want anything bigger. So they'll go find some unarmed group of people to mess with. And those are the kinds of conversations I wanted to have with people across the country. And to whatever extent I'm able to reach out to not just, you know, people in that in, in the Black Lives Matter movement, but people in the anti-lockdown movement, which is overwhelmingly statist. If you ask the average anti-lockdown person uh, about other issues, they're still going to give, you know, pretty, you know, conservative or, or, or populist talking points on those things that are not libertarian at all. But we agree on the lockdowns and we can start that conversation. Well, if you don't think government should be doing this, why should government be doing this? Or this or this or this and you know these are the kinds of conversations the pro second amendment people these are overwhelmingly statist but they recognize the purpose behind the second amendment and why they should have it or most of them do some of them some of them are just straight up fuds but even still you can reach people within those groups and bring them in but you have to start that conversation and you have to go where they are because they are a much bigger group they are where the political center of gravity is. You have to go where that is and kind of jujitsu it back to what you want to talk about. Sure, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of different, I guess, purposes behind communicating with people politically. One is to potentially transform their entire worldview, get them to become a perfect yeah. libertarian like yourself, and uh, everything is sunshine and rainbows from there. That's not what happens. Right. I mean, for, forget just the Black Lives Matter rallies. It's not what happens like anywhere for, on anything. So Ever. for the most part, the, almost the best we can do is find that thing because everybody kind of has a, a libertarian position on something or, you know, and then be the most hardcore possible person you can on that. And then maybe, you know, maybe they'll look into some of the other crazy things you're saying. But, you know, worst case, they're 
at least going to really agree with you on that one thing. And now you've made a partner that you can move forward on that one specific issue. And we got to make progress somewhere. If you got a partner with someone that wants high taxes to end lockdowns, like, okay, you know, they're not going to change their position on that one way or the other. But if they agree with you against the lockdowns, that's at least a partner against the lockdowns. Yeah. And here's the other part of that, Mark. When you meet people where they are, when you show that you care about them, when you show that you understand the situation and that you have a viable solution to it, even if they only agree with you on a sliver, even if they don't agree with you on anything, if you show it from the from the standpoint of demonstrating that you actually care about them and their concerns and think that they're valid and recognize that there is a problem that needs to be faced, this includes people that are worried about the cost of healthcare. 70, 70 to 75% of Americans right now, depending on who you ask, want some form of socialized or government-run healthcare, whether it's nationalized healthcare, Medicare for all, expanding Obamacare. We are way over, over uh, outnumbered on that subject. And even a lot of that 25, 30% that say no, they support the status quo or maybe a reduction, but they even they, a lot of them don't realize government's the problem, but they all recognize that there is a problem. So you reach them where they are. And if you do it that way, even if they walk away saying, well, you know, I didn't agree with everything they said, but you know, maybe they made some good points or whatever. At least they know we're not bad actors. Because if you ask a lot of people that have heard our ideas and we show up and we just go, you bunch of morons, you don't have a right to anything. You don't have a right to health care. You must think that you should be able to have slaves. You know, the free market could sort all of this out, the invisible hand. So here's what they've heard because they don't know what the invisible hand is, but they do know what neglect sounds like. And so here's what they've heard. I don't care about you. I'd rather argue with you while you tell me that you're worried about the cost of healthcare. I don't care what happens to you. And if I was in charge, I would replace healthcare with magic because that's what the invisible hand sounds like. So it sounds like I'm nuts and I don't like you or care about you. That's, and so then no wonder they then turn around and say, yeah, libertarians just want everyone to die in the street. No, let's explain how we got here and let's explain how our how our how our policies are the solution to that problem, not just on healthcare, but on everything else. But the first step of that is showing people that you actually are a good actor and you actually do care about what their concerns are. You have to do that by meeting them where they are. All right, gang. One more thing I got to mention to you before we wind up here with Spike Cohen. I got to make sure you know about another fine sponsor of ours, a patron of this program, longtime supporters, our friends over at Lauren Zotti Italy. If you like coffee, if you like fine premium Italian coffees delivered right to your house in these nice little fancy tins for very, very reasonable prices, then you got to check out Lauren Zotti Italy. You can find them at laurenzotti.coffee. And what I really love about having these guys as sponsors is that not only do they send you the great coffee you need right to your door, but they also are great businessmen, uh, great libertarians, and they're also out there helping others start their own businesses in the coffee industry, start their own coffee shops. They help them get equipment, uh, get financing, all that stuff they need to launch their own coffee business. So uh, please do check out great sponsors of ours, Lorenzotti Italy, again at lorenzotti.coffee, and you're going to want to use the discount code LIONS at checkout for 10% off your order. Uh, Spike, as you know, and now everybody will know because I'll tell them, uh, we were supposed to be live. Uh, you know, we were going to do a live stream for our patrons, the Lions of Liberty Pride. We were, we had some technical yes. snafu there, so we weren't able to stream live. But uh, I do want to take blocked by big yes, tech. blocked by big tech, a combination of big tech and, and maybe the ghost of Dark Tom Woods. But uh, uh, I do want to take care of my people, so I do have a few questions from uh, some of our Patreon supporters in the Lions of Liberty Pride. Absolutely, I'd like to pass along. Uh, let's start with a question from uh, Stephanie Stephanie Bloom. She wants to know what is your favorite i like this question what is your favorite question to ask the liberty carries do you own yourself and i found when i when i would do like uh before all these lockdowns back when things were open we would do these uh uh, uh we'd walk through college campuses and we'd ask people uh we were trying to figure out something that would stop people in their tracks and get them to listen to what we had to say other than hi i'm spike cohen i'm here with the libertarian <laughs> party of Green of, of UNC Greensboro, would you like to join? So instead, I would say, hey, I'm Spike Cohen. Uh, and they knew I was here with something like, you know, important because I've got this, you know, paper clip and, uh, and, and or, or um, uh, paper. I know what you're trying to say. And I, I can't think of what it's called yeah, either. That yeah, thing you put the paper in. The- it's not a paper clip. <laughs> This is why paper, we need the live stream so kick, people can bail us out. When this is going to, I'm going to kick. No, leave when this two in. seemingly intelligent podcasters don't know. Leave what, this in. I oh, want people I'm to see this. Like Cohen doesn't know what this is called. <laughs> a notepad, whatever. Clipboard? Paper. Is it a clipboard? 
Clipboard. clipboard. Thank you. My God, that would have bothered me. I would have Googled it right after this and then hated myself. So I got <laughs> my got clipboard. There. I've got all my stuff. I got my literature. So clearly I'm there to convert them to like Mormonism or whatever. Like, so I, I show up and, you know, I walk up to them, but I wanted to have something to kind of stop them. So I, so we came up with, uh, you know, we'd say, hi, I'm whatever your name is. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, do you own yourself? Everyone wanted to talk about that. I had like one or two people that would just be like, I'm sorry, I have to get somewhere. But even they would be like, what did you say? What did that guy say? I own myself. Yeah. And then and then they'd go, but I have to go. They still had to go. But even then they're walking away like, do I own myself? <laughs> so I even, we had a couple people that, you know, were actually a little offended. Hmm. But then when, but it was funny, 100% of the people that got, it was maybe only maybe 5, 10% that got offended, but 100% of the people didn't know. 100% of the people that got offended did not know what they thought about it but they did not like that I asked, <laughs> but it started a conversation. They all ended up having a conversation. I, I can't imagine what the offense could be. Well, like, like, uh, it was weird. I can see not getting the question, I, but I can't see being actually offended by it. But yeah, I'd, I'd stop a couple people and, and uh, uh, a couple young ladies and I'd, I'd stop and I'd say, you know, I do you own yourself. And they go, what do you mean? And they wouldn't like get angry and start yelling, but you could tell it was like, they didn't like being asked that. And I'd say, well, do you own yourself? And they're like, I don't know. And then I'd say, well, what, what do you think about that? What do you think self-ownership is? Well, now we're having a conversation. And uh, it was interesting because uh, the idea came from asking a question to make them think of something. So this is an old, I used to do some cold calling and this is an old cold calling technique. Try to get them to start talking and, and answering questions and and it, the conversation being about what they're saying, because the best way to keep someone on the phone who's trying to figure out how you even got their number uh, is to get them to start talking about stuff. A, because people like to talk about things. And if you can even get them to maybe start like uh, venting about something that's been stressing them out or something like that, you can really get them into, you know, into where you're, you're listening to them, where they'll keep talking. Uh, and second, uh, subconsciously, the more you're the one talking during a conversation, the more you are predisposed to think that whatever the conclusion of that conversation was, it was your idea because you did most of the talking. So if I'm just kind of listening and then I add some ideas of in, in cold calling what I think you should buy, you're actually in tune uh, subconsciously, your brain goes, maybe this was my idea. So it's, it's kind of an old school cold calling slash sales technique. And uh, it went very well. Yeah. Asking, uh, do you own yourself is a, is a very, try it with your, your friends and loved ones. And uh, if someone, you know, hits you, then <laughs> the blame spike on, no, it wasn't then, <laughs> you know, at, at your own risk, ask people, but no one tried hitting us. So. All right. I've got a question here from John Odermatt, the host of Finding Freedom here on Lions Liberty. He wants mm. to know, how should the Libertarian Party measure success? Should it be party membership, vote percentage, something else entirely? I think that I'm not sure that there's a single metric that needs to, to be used. I will say this. If you're not growing at least a little in all those metrics, then something is wrong. Um, you know, you can't and, and long term, it's not sustainable. You cannot have an increase in vote count. Uh, either for the presidential candidate or just across the board, if you don't also have increased membership. Uh, and you're not going to have increased membership if you don't have increased mentions on media and social media. Uh, and you're not going to have that if you don't have uh, more candidates running and, and, and more people registering as libertarians. So I'm not, I, I think it's really just all of those metrics need to be growing. And I think that at this point, at least for now, they need to be growing at double digits because we are still very small. We're the third largest political party, but that's like in the same way that if you had a, a, a two trucks and then you put a, a like a Tonka truck in between them, yes, that would be the third largest vehicle, but it is much smaller than the other two. So I think we need to be growing um, you know, by double digits anyway, and, and possibly even exponentially, at least for now. And, uh, but I'm not sure there's a single metric that, that you could use. I think you have to kind of look at all of them. Got a question here from Perry Nord and he asks, and I, I think you might've sort of addressed this earlier, but he, he asks what exactly, if anything propelled the change in messaging after the campaign. And I, I'm not sure if there was a personal change as much as just maybe some of the Spike Cohen quote unquote messaging that was coming from maybe social media just simply wasn't really your messaging as you kind of mentioned earlier, but I mean, anything else you want to address uh, when it, as it comes to like your, your messaging of, of late? Yeah. So I think the only change for, because again if it came from me if it didn't come from me or my social media i didn't have anything to do with it and i'm not i'm not throwing anyone under the bus i think the vast majority of the messaging or most of the messaging that came from the jorgensen campaign was good so it's a, i'm not saying all that terrible stuff but it wasn't me 
that was definitely Joe Jorgensen and, and her communications team. The one thing that was different on my social media is that whereas I would have preferred to focus on one or two or maybe three of the main hot button issues and plow ahead on those, during the campaign, we would be told things like, well, this is education week, so we're going to try to really talk about education, even if no one else was talking about education. Now, off-season, not during a campaign, that makes sense. Have a bourse of things that you talk about and, you know, don't just limit it to specific things. Try to, you know, introduce new ideas because it's not crucial, uh, scarce time that people have to look at, you know, politics during, during the height of an election. Um, but that was something I wouldn't have talked about, you know, I wouldn't have have dived into, you know, uh, into a, a whole thing on, education, for example, or energy on a specific week that no one else was talking about that just because that was our, our pre, you know, our pre-scheduled week for that thing. Um, so I think that's the only real difference, but in terms of how I message, I've always messaged the way that, that I message. Um, I also, now I don't have to, the job of the vice presidential candidate is to tell people why they, why they should vote for the presidential candidate that they're, that they're running with that, that is their job during the campaign. Um, and, I still say that Joe Jorgensen was easily the best person to, to, to vote for out of those that were that were running. But I no longer have to. If Joe Jorgensen Joe Jorgensen says something now that I don't agree with, and someone asks me about it, I can say, "Well, I, I don't agree with that," and you may want to ask her about it. That was something obviously I couldn't do during the campaign. Other than that, um, no, I. I I, I pretty much was was me. There there were a couple times during the busyness of the campaign um, that a couple things came out from my team uh, before I had tight controls in place um, to to make sure that everything that was put out was was approved by me first. Um, that was very early in the campaign, like uh, July August, and uh, by then we uh, you know we had it we we removed that stuff and and uh, put some controls in place and haven't really had any issues since then. I'm going to I'm going to sneak in one more listener question here uh, before we wrap things up. This one comes from a gentleman I believe you're familiar with. His, he goes by Dan Smots and he says, Spike, will there ever be an acceptable time for me to release that footage from the bust? You know what footage I'm talking about. Any response there, Spike? <laughs> I mean, you can I no one's stopping you from releasing it. I just, you know, I, do people want to see me changing? Like I I don't I wasn't naked. Let's just be clear. I don't they, you don't have any photos of me naked, but he has some stuff of me like, you know, like changing shirts and stuff and and I mean, if people want to if there's a market out there for people watching me change shirts and you know, is that all it is? It sounds so much more, so much more scandalous for <laughs> unless I'm forgetting something. I think that was the stuff where he would, he would sneak that into stuff. And I'm like, why, why, like, why, why does anyone want to see that? You know, me, me, like, you know, uh, uh, you know, walking around with my, with my, or, you know, walking to, to, you know, change my shirt out or something like that with my, you know, with my suit pants still on. Cause he was on the bus with me. And, uh, you know, when you got six, six people, on a on a on a bus um you know you become somewhat familiar um so i mean i guess if people want to see that sure i i don't believe there was anything more scandalous that i'm that i'm forgetting about but if but if there is then no don't really dan of course been a good friend of the show for a long time and he uh many people will know him either from his podcast the system is down but he was the one uh for those not aware responsible for all the amazing amazing uh videos and campaign ads that yes. came out from, from you and, and joe so uh because of that and because he pays us money i decided to get his his joke question in. so you're welcome dan no that's it's not a joke question if he's got something scandalous <laughs> never released Well, he it. actually had a prediction. Never he said, it. he said prediction. He will laugh, purse his lips, raise his eyebrows and say something to the effect of, I honestly have no idea what footage she's talking about. So, <laughs> and he says, if he does this, you will know he's lying. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know if there's more than just you changing. Maybe we'll find out someday. Um, uh, I do want to wrap up with just a couple more questions uh, from me, from, from the host here. Uh, sure. I, I'm sure mm -hmm. because you're a libertarian on the internet, uh, you are aware of a lot of the talk recently from like the Mises caucus, Dave Smith, the talk of this libertarian party takeover. And you actually were endorsed, endorsed by the Mises caucus uh, during mm -hmm. your, your vice presidential mm -hmm. run. I think they were a big part of you getting that nomination. So well, I'm just curious what you think about, uh, 
uh, just like the general idea and language of the takeover. Uh, the idea of, I, I think for them, they see it as we're coming, we're bringing in a bunch of like-minded people that have better, stronger messaging that we agree with, but other people that are maybe already in the party that aren't a part of that caucus a part, or don't feel they're a part of that group, they might see it as, oh, yep. you're taking us over. You want to kick us out of here. So what's your take on that that whole thing? And that's most of the problem, which is which is the reason why I'm not a huge fan of that messaging. So let's first this didn't happen in a vacuum. Let's remember what even created the 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 Mises caucus and the anger behind it in the first place. You had people that were saying that someone like Tom Woods is not welcome in the party uh, or should not be welcome in the party. They, they didn't say he can't join, but they, they basically make it clear that he, you know, his ideas, he and his ideas weren't welcome. And I don't agree with, with Tom Woods on everything. I'd say we probably agree on 80, 85% on things, but there were a couple of things like with immigration that I, I didn't agree with, but they would say that, but then they turn around and say, but you know who is welcome? Dick Cheney. <laughs> I like this. They like, we don't know who you're talking about, but uh. <laughs> well, it, it, no, but, and, and it's not, it's, you know, there are the individual people, but it, it's not, it wasn't just a specific person. It might've been the specific person that was the straw, but it was a prevailing idea within many in leadership and in positions, prominent positions that we need to try to seek respectability within the, the, the bigger parties and within the, I guess, DC beltway culture. And that that will grant us the electoral gains that we desire. Well, first of all, no, it won't. Why would they give us that? Why would they give us access to that poison chalice if they don't have to? Uh, what it will get us is a pat on the head from major media. We might get more media mentions, but they're all just us saying what we agree with from the, the fringes or the mainstream of the Republicans or Democrats. What's the point of that? How, how are we going to grow from that? And, and how in any way is this spreading the message of liberty, uh, much less getting actual principled libertarians elected? So out of the frustration of that comes people saying, no, we're taking this over, you know, the 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 prags for lack of a better word. But really, it's not just the prags. There are a lot of of of, of really good prags. And there are a lot of uh, people who aren't prags that were a part of this, you know, but the prags or the people that wanted this have led us astray and we're going to set it right. And I think that's what takeover is supposed to mean it was meant to mean. The problem is, and this this goes back to a messaging thing, it sounds adversarial unnecessarily so. I know people who are Rothbardian and Caps who have been a part of the party for quite some time and who look at the Mises caucus and say, no, I don't want to be part of a presumed takeover or a perceived takeover. I don't want to do that. Uh, I agree with a lot of what they're doing or a lot of what their goals are, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to be a part of it. And there are other people who, you know, might agree with the, the Mises people on quite a bit, but they're hearing we're taking over, you know, uh, anyone who doesn't agree with us is part of the loser brigade. And, you know, it's just, it's unnecessary adversarial and oppositional posturing is my opinion. And, and, you know, might it work? It might, might it not work? I, I don't, I, I think to whatever degree that they succeed, it will have been harmed by that. They could very well end up taking over uh, the, the party. And by the way, if, if they do take over, if they do become the majority in the party or, or, or build a majority coalition, I think most of the changes are going to be wildly positive. So it's not even that I don't want them to do well. I do want, them, I'm a member of the caucus. I, it's not that I don't want them to do well. I, I do want them to do well. It's that I don't think that this is the best way to talk about it. Um, it seems to have softened somewhat over time. And, and by soften, I don't mean become soft. Because I think that's the other thing is that uh, a lot of the people are going, well, we can't be soft. We can't be quitters yeah. or, or losers. It, the, the opposite of takeover is not give up and be a loser. The opposite of takeover is here is what we believe. Here is what we are going to do. Let's work together. The opposite of takeover is collaboration. And when you make that invitation to people, now it's on them to say, no, I, I or say, yes, I'm going to join you. I'd be happy to join you now that we're talking about collaborating or no, I don't like it because of this. Well, do you not like it because of an individual person you don't like, or do you not like it because you don't agree with the libertarian goals we have, or is it some you know other reason? Let's have that conversation. But now instead of them being able to throw you as a boogeyman and say, we got to stop this takeover, over, now they actually have to defend why they don't like it. And, and maybe they have some good ideas. Maybe there are some things that can be changed, but maybe not. And I, I just, I, I don't, I'm not a fan of that, of that, that um, oppositional posturing. Um, put it this way, Jacob Hornberger, who was sort of a litmus test on, on the Mises caucus by the end there, he only gained something like 30 votes between the first round and the final round, 30 votes, 40 votes, 20 votes, something like that. He had a very high 
floor compared to most candidates, but he also had a very low ceiling. There wasn't much soft Hornberger support. And that was a direct reflection of what people thought of the Mises caucus. Now, their answer is, well, we're just going to grow out of that. Well, that might happen, but why? Why should we have to wait until we have a majority or a supermajority to take over when most people agree with our goals anyway within the party? Why, why wouldn't we just change how we are talking to the other people within the party and make it more of a, a, uh, you know, a collaborative thing as opposed to a, 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 an oppositional thing? I just don't think it's necessary. And this isn't my first time saying it. I, I, I don't think it's necessary. What, what do you think the best hope is for what the Libertarian Party can be? I think even you would probably admit, probably not going to have a Libertarian president in 2024, 2028. Maybe maybe I'm wrong there. Um, but I mean, like, what, what do you think the most useful tool, like the most useful use uh, for the Libertarian Party could be ideally? Because I, I think one of the biggest criticisms I get right now, and this has been a lot of, uh, we had a debate on this show uh, with Dave Smith and Eric Brakey kind of discussing uh, where the energy of the Ron Paul Liberty movement should be. Should it be in the Libertarian Party or should it be in the Republican Party? Because at least that's a vessel that has power. At least that's a vessel where right. we can make things happen. Whereas the Libertarian Party, maybe you can get some more excitement around it, but at the end of the day, you're not going to be able to get into power. You're not going to be able to affect any change. What's, what's your stance? Obviously, you're in the Libertarian Party, so you've made the stance in that way. But I mean, what do you say to that criticism, I guess, that that the Libertarian Party can't really be politically useful? Politically useful. Yeah, uh, the Republican Party is a great place for your hopes and dreams to die. And I say that as a former you know, Liberty Republican uh, in, in, in all but name. Um, you know, you can go one of two routes. You can either go the Rand Paul route where they let you give some, you know, uh, uh, rousing speeches for liberty as long as you continue voting in and, and confirming the warmongers that they put in their cabinets and, and you know, uh, supporting all their all their their bills when they're in office and, you know, pretty much, you know, being a reliable pro-Republican vote, even if it goes against your stated principles. Uh, or you can go the Justin Amash route where you stand on your principles and then get routed out of the party after they have leveraged you and your popularity and your voice to grow them and, and grow them and grow their party and, and get libertarians to believe that, uh, you know, there's some hope in joining them. I, there's no hope there. Um, they are a part of the Republican machine. They and the and the Democrats work together to create a good cop, bad cop routine to get people voting Republican so that this never ends. Um, we have to grow something outside of it. Now, is a libertarian going to win in 2024? Long before a libertarian wins in, in 2024 in for president, they'll have to be able to have enough support to make it onto the debate stage. And long before that, we're going to have to have enough support to be able to get libertarians elected across the country at local and regional and statewide levels. Now, we do win races, dozens and hundreds of them at a time every election cycle. Uh, we just had a special election where we won something like 40% of the races last month, 40, 44%, something like that. In a competitive three-way uh, race, uh, if we were operating like that on all levels, uh, if we were winning 44% of the races and there are still two other uh, um, competitive parties there, we just won. We just won more races than anyone else. So the reality is that we're already winning at a certain level. We need to focus on that. Let's look at how we're winning there. Instead of worrying about who's going to run in 2024, every time someone says, hey, Spike, are you running in 2024? I say, I haven't made any decisions. And also, who cares? Like, let's go focus on what we can win. Let's do more of that. Let's win a thousands of races every cycle because we have the ability to be able to do it at that level. And then let's begin scaling that up so that we can win bigger races. I, I don't think that has to come first. If we are going to have a, a candidate that's able to make it onto the debate stage in 2024, much less be able to win the thing or seriously contest the thing, then we have to do this work beforehand. So before we even talk about that, we need to be getting libertarian, more libertarians elected in their city councils, their county councils, their state legislatures, uh, their you know mayor's races and things like that. And very quickly, we can scale up from there. I'm just going to mark down here, Spike, definitely running in 2024. Got it. <laughs> no, I, th <laughs> I don't. I really, I 100%. It's funny during these conventions, people will come up to, you know, members of my team or they'll come up to my wife and they'll say, I know he's saying he hasn't made any decisions, but, <laughs> but come on, uh, has he made a decision? And they're like, no, literally he says at home or on, on the, the team calls, the same thing that he says, uh, you know, that he says, uh, at the, at the conventions or on these, uh, on these, uh, interviews. I really don't know. I also don't think it's that important. I think what's really important is getting libertarians elected where we can get elected.
All right, well, that being uh, said, Spike, I know that uh, regardless of uh, if you run for office or anything like that, again, you are going to be out there being very, very vocal about this stuff either way. And uh, we'd certainly look forward to yeah. seeing and hearing more from Spike Cohen going forward. So that being said, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I re- really, really enjoyed this conversation. And uh, and before I let you go, if you have anything else uh, you want to plug away besides Muddy Water Media or anything else you want to mention, feel free to plug away. Sure. So if you want to hear my my podcast, uh, my fellow Americans uh, and the Muddy Waters of Freedom, you can watch or listen to them on pretty much any social media platform uh, or on any uh, podcasting platform. We are everywhere. Our our website is muddiedwatersmedia.com. If you want to follow my uh, political pursuits uh, and exploits across the country, uh, I am on Facebook, YouTube, uh, Twitter. I need to, I just realized I need to add Instagram right here, Uh, but I'm on Instagram as well. I'm on TikTok, but I am, my team is desperately trying to get me to figure out how to use TikTok. <laughs> I, I think I've made one video. Um, but, uh, it helps but if you're a 14 year old girl, but you know, it, it does help. I found that my lack of, of 14 year old, 14 year old womanhood is, <laughs> is definitely a block there. Uh, but so yeah, Facebook, uh, YouTube, Twitter, or uh, Instagram. If you look for Spike Cohen, you will find me pretty easily. And uh, yeah, if, stay in touch. I will be more than likely, I will be in a, a state near you if I haven't already been coming soon. Um, my next uh, visit this coming weekend will be in Wisconsin. Uh, then I have stuff coming up in Ohio and Tennessee in California and in Colorado. I uh, just got back from Alaska. I, uh, you know, pretty much I, I am, uh, I, I will more than likely be nearby you. So, you know, follow me on my social media and, and more than likely I'll be near you. I do Q and a sessions everywhere I go, at least an hour plus. Uh, I want to get as many questions from the locals as I possibly can. So come on out and ask your question. I'd love to get to meet you. All right, Spike Cohen, keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thank you, man. Thanks, Spike. All right, gang, that does it for this week's flagship Lions of Liberty podcast. And of course, it's the flagship because we have other podcasts. That's right. Brian McWilliams comes at you hard every single Wednesday with his acerbic brand of comedy, culture, and liberty over on Electric Liberty Land, while uh, John Odermatt wraps things up on Thursdays with his amazing new show, his Pivot No longer Felony Friday. It is now Finding Freedom. And uh, if you missed last week's episode, uh, his interview with this guy from India, I don't have his name on me. I am sorry, but he's there right now uh, reporting on everything that's been going on with the lockdowns in India. You have got to go check out this interview. It is truly uh, stunning what is going on there. And I think we really need to to spread the word and uh, find ways to help people out over there. So please do check out that interview and check out everything we got going on here by hitting that subscribe button and getting all three shows per week. The greatest Liberty Variety show on earth right here at Lions of Liberty. That's all I got, gang. Until next time. Live long and live free.